0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. A number of years ago, we were living in Washington State, and unbeknownst to us, a family of skunks had moved in to the crawl space under our house. And, um, and we didn't notice it so much at first, but every once in a while, we would get this whiff. And we weren't sure what that smell was or where it was coming from. And every once in a while, we just kind of, what is that? What is that smell? Where is it coming from? And then it would dissipate and it would go away. And a couple days later, again, would be one of those, what is that? smell, Where, what is going, what is, and it kept getting stronger and stronger, and we kind of got used to it, but then every once in a while, I'd just be a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger, Till finally, I kind of, I got the flashlight, I didn't go under the house, but I got the flashlight, went through the little crawl space door, looked in there, and there was this family of skunks that had moved in, and, 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 and was, the smell was getting worse and worse and worse, as she had babies, and the babies grew up and practiced doing what skunks do, and it was just like, who's going to fix this? How are we going to get rid of these skunks? We needed somebody to come and get rid of the skunks, get somebody who would make things right again so that our home would be the place it was supposed to be. We live in a world where things are not the way they were supposed to be. And every once in a while, we get a whiff of that. We don't notice it because we kind of become accustomed to it. It's the only reality that we know. But every once in a while, something happens, and and we get a whiff of this idea. Things are not right. Something's wrong here. How are we going to fix this? Who's going to fix this? How can things be made right again and be made to operate the way they were supposed to be? We experience it in our world. We experience it in our own lives. This morning, we are beginning this series, the story, based on the story of Scripture. And for the next 17 weeks, we are going to immerse ourselves in the story, part one. Um, We're going to take a break in the summer, and then in the fall, go into the story, part two. But we're going to start, as all good stories start, at the beginning And one of the things that you're going to discover and that I'm going to discover and we're going to discover together is that as we read through the story, and I hope, by the way, if you have not picked up your copy of the book that you'll get it this morning, I hope you'll get into a community group and be a part of the conversation as we go through the story together because it'll just help you better understand and and see your place in that because here's the whole deal. As we go through the story, you and I are going to find that there are these intersections of our story with God's story. Because see, that's what the story is. It is the story of God's redeeming work. It is the story of God who is fixing what has gone wrong with his creation. And at these various intersecting points, we're going to discover that his story intersects with our story. And hopefully, you're going to find your place in this great God's story that we're going to be looking at. So we're starting at the beginning, Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We're going to cover a lot of material this morning. Let me say one more thing about this, by the way. The Bible is not one book. The Bible is actually a collection of books, 66 of them to be exact, written by at least 39 different authors over many centuries, thousands of years. But what you find for all these different authors all this time is it is actually one big Story. Part of it, part of the story, involves the history and the narrating of the story, and that's mostly what we're going to be looking at. But there are parts of this story that there are there are reflections on it. There are expressions of praise and 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 songs and psalms and hymns and and and, and you'll find some of it is letters. There's all kinds of different genres of literature that's involved in this book we call the Bible. But it is one story, and we're going to start this morning with Genesis chapter one. Don't have time to read. Chapters 1 through 3. But we're going to start in the story with this understanding. Here's what I want you to see. Because sometimes we think the New Testament is all about this loving, gracious God. And it's all about God's grace. But the Old Testament God, he's this mean, angry, bitter old man who's always smiting people. Okay? And that that, that the Old Testament is all this bad, bad stuff. And the New Testament is where grace begins. But what we're going to discover this morning is grace was there from the very, very beginning. At the very beginning, grace was there. And the very first act of God's grace is this. You were created to live in a relationship with God. I was created to be in relationship with God. That is the first measure of His grace. The book of Genesis opens with this sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that one sentence changes everything. It changes every conception that people had had about God, about man and his place in the universe. It changes it to this day. It all starts with the creator God. Now, other, other cultures, other societies of the time, other ancient um, peoples had a belief in God. They believed in the supernatural. They just didn't believe in a God. Usually, it was a whole bunch of gods. And these gods were not particularly moral or ethical. They were kind of just superhuman beings. And they were just as bad as the humans were. And much of the stories that you have in, in, in other uh, cultures and other societies were these gods who were always fighting each other. And, and actually, one of the more well-known is called the Enuma Elish. It is the, the creation story um, from the Mesopotamian region. And it starts with all of these gods who are fighting. And, and one kills one god, and then that god... Uh, the, whose, whose husband was killed remarries and then, and there's all these different killings and the gods are fighting each other and killing each other and battling chaos and all these other things and, and in the Enuma Elish what happens is one of the gods is killed cut in half and half becomes the, 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 the sea and the land and the, and the other half becomes the sky and then out of the entrails men are created mankind is created at the entrails of this slain god and the whole idea is that the, the, these men are created because the gods are basically lazy and they don't want to have to do any work. So they create mankind to do their work, to feed them, to do, be subservient to them. And, and all these gods, these capricious gods, all they've done, man is kind of an afterthought and really doesn't serve a purpose except to feed me, take care of me. And when you read the Genesis account, this is a completely different story. Because the writer of Genesis begins with this idea. There is a God, one God, who is creator God. That is different than any other concept that anybody had ever had before. And, and by the way, these ancient cultures, many of their gods were actually deifications of different parts of creation. So there were fertility gods. There were, there were gods that represented the sun. There were god that rep- a god that represented the moon. There was a gods that, that represented all the different stars and all those constellations. And they actually believed, if you can understand this, they actually believed that the stars would influence human behavior. Never heard of that before. But that was the belief. That's where all of that comes from. And, and when the writer of Genesis talks about this God who created, he is making a point. Now, sometimes, sometimes what happens is we get involved in debates and we get in the, in, involved in arguments and discussions about was it a literal 24-hour day? Was it a literal seven days a week that God created? Was it, and, and that is not the point. That is not the point of this account of creation. The point of creation is, of this creation story in Genesis, is that there is one God. He is the creator. He is not part of the creation. He created it, and there is order, and there is design, and there is purpose, and they come from the mind of God. That, in itself is an act of grace because mankind is not an afterthought. Mankind is not fashioned together solely for the purpose of of feeding my every whim as God. That actually mankind occupies a very unique place in God's creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Now that is uniquely different than any other description of where man fits in the universe, where man fits in this world. And it is actually in this part of the story, it is unique the way that God creates man. He forms man. The fact goes on. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The idea behind that is we are created for this intimacy with God. See, that's what the writer of Genesis wants us to understand. That there's not a lot of bunch of gods and they're, they're fighting each other all the time and we're just kind of an afterthought and their only purpose here is to appease them and their every will. Rather, that this is a loving relationship. And God has, has uniquely made humanity as a part of this. Do you notice in the creation story there is this repeating um, series of phrases? God spoke, or God said, and it was so and it was good. God spoke and it was so and it was good. God spoke and it was so and it's good. And that's the repeating phrase that you find all throughout the creation story. Now think about that. Who is it good for? It's good for mankind. That God creates this world and everything in it, not for himself. He doesn't need a place to dwell. He creates it as a dwelling place for mankind, for you and for me. This is the grace of God. From the very beginning, his very first acts in all of creation was he prepared a place. He designed and fulfilled this whole place For the purpose of a dwelling place for you and for me. So the next time when you stand at the top of that mountain on the ski lift. Before you take that first run in the morning. Just stop for a moment. Take in the majesty of those mountains. And say thank you God. You created this for me. Next time you stand at the seashore. Or watch a sunset. Or take a walk through the woods. And you marvel and look at the beauty and the creation and all that is around you. Stop for a moment and realize this is a creation that is an act of God's grace for you, for me. He creates us for this relationship with him. And he provides for us everything that is necessary for our sustenance. He is a good And gracious and generous God. He creates the world, He fills it with all of this, and then He gives it away. (laughs) He says to humanity, Take, eat, enjoy, multiply, and fill the earth. This is all good, and it is all for you. He creates this whole thing, His generosity abounds all around them. And there's only one rule. Just one. There's hundreds and thousands of yes trees. There's only one no tree. Do not eat from this tree the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God has graciously provided everything, filled it all. and made it all available. But he leaves us with a choice. One choice. And that's the second part of this story. Your choices, my choices, will either move me toward God or away from God. Your choices will move you either toward God or away from God. This, too, is an act of His grace. He gives this freedom, but He doesn't force it on us. See, Grace literally means a gift. So God gives this opportunity, but he doesn't force it. It is is an opportunity, but we make the choice about it. And every day, you and I make choices, and the choices that we make about our life are moving us one direction or another. The choices are either moving us toward God, or they are moving us away from him. But all of our choices have that impact on our lives and on our relationship with him. See, this idea of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't about acquiring wisdom and moral discernment. That's not what's at stake here. What's at stake here is, will I trust God and his goodness and his wisdom and his ways, or will I choose to make the decision about what's right and wrong for myself apart from God? See, that's what the decision comes down to. It's a decision. Will I fit my life into the way that God says it was designed to be, or will I do it my own way and be a God unto myself? That's the choice that they're putting. And and that, by the way, is the choice that every one of us are faced with in the decisions we make each day. Will I trust God? Will I I choose to live in his ways, or will I do it the way that I want to do it? And reject his ways. And this is where the tempter begins. He approaches the woman and says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That seems like an innocent question at first. Except if you notice, he has slightly changed the wording. See, God said you may eat, you may eat of any tree in the garden. But what the tempter does is he comes along and he says, now did God really say that you must not eat of any tree? Now what's going on here is he is raising doubts about the goodness and generosity of God. By just adding that one word. See, God said you may eat of any tree. And he turns around and says, Did God say you must not not must not eat of any tree? And just adding that one word, just changing it slightly, what he has done is he has called into question my belief and my trust in God's goodness. It's kind of like, let's say you had you had this, just you loved jelly donuts. Okay, you're just like you love jelly donuts. Every morning, that's your breakfast, a cup of coffee and a jelly donut. And after a while, you just love jelly. You can't get enough of jelly donuts. You're just eating jelly donuts every single morning. This is the breakfast of champions. But finally, you get around and you realize, you know, this probably is not too good for me. I should probably cut back on jelly donuts. My cholesterol is getting high. It's way too much sugar first thing in the morning. I I know they're not good for me, so I will make a decision. I will no longer eat jelly donuts. And you make that firm decision. I'll eat anything else. Fruits, vegetables. I'll eat oatmeal. I'll eat anything. But I'm just not going to eat jelly donuts anymore. The next morning when you wake up and you get your cup of coffee, what is the one food item that you are thinking about? Jelly donuts. Because they have now become the thing that you're focused on. And that's what the tempter does. God says, all of these yes trees have at it. Just One no tree. And by turning the wording, he's now brought the focus on the one no tree. And he has raised doubts. And this is, by the way, how temptation works. We begin to doubt the goodness of God. Because his ways just don't seem like the way they ought to do it. That we have this feeling that somehow if we do something God way, we're missing out on something. God has some secret goodness that he is hiding from us and he's forbidden us to have. And if I do things God way, then somehow I'm going to miss out on what I really want. Lots of yes trees, one no tree. So here's her response. We may eat from the trees of the garden. She got that part right. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now, again, God never said that. God never said you may not touch it. He said don't eat from it. But he never said you must not touch it. But you see, just that subtle change in her thinking has now gotten, and this is what happens in every one of us. This is how it works. She begins to think, God's holding out on me. God's holding out on me. I I, I counsel people over all the time, all the time. And people will come in and they'll say, you know, my life is a mess. And I know what God's word says, but. (laughs) I know what the Bible says, but. I know what God believes and what God says about this, but God doesn't know my situation. It's, not, it's different for me. And that's the way temptation works in us. We say, I know what God says, and I know that's the right thing, but, but God doesn't know my situation. You don't know what I'm facing. You don't know what I've gone through. And I tell people all the time, I say, you know what? I don't need to know. Because that's not what's at issue here. What's at issue is, do you trust God? The goodness of God, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's the hard thing to do, because that's the real question. When we get to this idea, see, what happens in Eve's mind is now God is not the generous, gracious, giving God. Now he's a miser who is holding back something good from me. Why else would he say not that? And all these. why else would he say that? There must be something really special about that fruit. There must be something there that God is holding out on me. And our whole concept of God has begun to change. And that's how it works in us. See, that's how it works. We look at something that we desire, something that we would pursue, and we know what God says about it, but he doesn't know my situation. And if I do it his way, then I'm going to miss out on something. God must be holding back from me. We don't think those words Directly, but that's really what's going on. By the way, by the way, when that command was given, it was given to Adam before Eve had been created. The command to not eat the fruit from that tree, that was given to Adam before. We, so, so so by, by the way, women here, okay? Show of hands. Anybody here ever experienced a conversation, and the man did not fill you in on all the specific details of a conversation? Anybody ever? Okay, okay. See, it's not Eve's fault. It's Adam's fault. He did not convey the information. Women have taken the brunt of this for a long, long time, and we need to set the record straight. The problem was with the man. Yeah. He did not communicate which should have been communicated. And, and here's another thought. Where's God in the middle of all this? How co- is God somewhere off in a different part of the garden? Does God not know this conversation's taking place? Does God not understand what's at stake here? Why is he not there rebutting the, the, the tempter's words? Why is he not straightening, the, straightening out the record? Why is not he not clarifying the thing? Where is God in the middle of this? Here's what I think is happening. Because this is what God does. He's giving space. Because she's going to have to make that decision for herself. And maybe you've struggled with a compulsion or, or an addiction, or you've struggled with a particular sin, and you keep saying, God, why aren't you helping me with this? Why aren't you changing me? Why, is it, why do I keep giving in to this? Because God is giving you the space to make the choices for yourself. Because, you see, up until this point, they are innocent, but they have not developed any character. They are innocent of sin. Wonderful thing. But they have no depth of character to who they are. And that's what happened. That's where our character comes from. It comes from the choices and the patterns of choices that we make throughout our life. And that's why the choices that we make become so important. Even though we write them off and say it's not that big a deal. It's not hurting anybody. It is. It's hurting our soul. (laughs) It's doing damage. Because the choices that we are making are shaping our character. And God will not force that on you or on me. It's the decisions that we make that will do it. Grace always involves the opportunity to choose. And God is doing that here. He is giving them the freedom to choice. See, the reason this is so important is because what really, really matters is the person you're becoming, what really matters is your soul. What really matters is your character. That's what God is most concerned about. Because it is the only thing that you take with you into eternity. All of your achievements, all of your accomplishments, all of the, say, uh, all that other stuff. None of that goes with you into eternity. What you bring into eternity is you, who you have become. And that's why our choices are so important. So he leaves them with the choice. And they make the choice. They make the choice to serve themselves instead of serving God. They make the choice to trust themselves instead of trusting God. But here's the good news. Whatever your choices, God doesn't give up on you. Here too is grace. Adam and Eve made their choice. Not content with God's generosity, not having faith in his character or believing in his goodness, they make their choice for themselves. And everything goes bad. At that moment, sin enters the world. And with it comes rebellion and selfishness, wickedness and fighting and strife and all of that. And one more thing, shame. Shame enters the world. It says their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed Now, in our society, in our culture, we kind of downplay this idea of shame. Shame isn't a good thing, but shame actually is a very, very important part in who you become. Shame makes us face up to what we have done and what it is doing to us. Shame fills a very, very important role. See, if you've been in recovery at all... You've been a part of Alcoholics Anonymous or or any any recovery group. One of the qualifications, one of the precepts, if you will, of, of these recovery ministries is the admission, this is who I am. Hi, I'm Ken and I'm alcoholic. Or hi, I'm Bill and I'm alcoholic. Whatever it might be. And the reason for that is, is you have to own up to who you are before you can find the freedom and the forgiveness and the strength that you really need. And so God comes, God comes to them, and God comes to them with a question. See, here again is the grace of God. He comes with this simple question. The Lord God called out to the man, where are you? Where are you? See, because when we make the choice to sin, there's always a follow-up choice after that. What will we do with our sin? Adam and Eve chose to hide. They went, made fig leaves, skirts and pants or whatever, I don't know. And they went and hid. And God comes, God comes looking for them. Not, not to beat them over the head, not to berate them, but with a simple question, where are you? Now think about this. They are hiding from God. God. In the garden that he created. (laughs) I'm so glad I'm not that stupid. (laughs) Isn't that our story? We sin, we do wrong, and we cover it up and we hide. See, that's the follow up decision with every failure, with every sin, with every... There's always this follow-up decision. What will I do with this now? And God graciously, this this is the grace of God. He comes just asking the question, where are you? Now, it's not because God is confused. It's not because they have found a secret hiding place that God didn't know about. What he is doing is he is giving them the opportunity to come clean. He's giving them the opportunity to face up with what they have done. See, that's the purpose of the question. God knows where they are. God knows what they have done. But he comes asking the question so that they know they still have a choice about this. And Adam comes clean. Sort of. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Notice what he does not say. <laughs> he does not say, I sinned. He says, I heard. I was afraid. I hid. But he doesn't say, I sinned. He just tries to evade the issue. And isn't that human, isn't that human nature? Even when faced with the reality of what we have done, we will somehow try to evade it. It was a mistake. It wasn't a sin. It was a mistake. Mistakes were made. Somebody made a mistake somewhere. We we try to minimize it. So God presses him on it. God doesn't let him just keep hiding. He's come out in the open in terms of physicality, but he's still hiding a little bit. So God presses him on it. And when God finally puts him into the corner and God finally gives him the chance to man up and take personal responsibility for what he has done, this is what he says. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Yeah. Way to man up there, Adam. Adam. The woman. The woman. And by the way, whose idea was it of the woman? Oh, yeah, that would have been your idea, God. Things were cool around here. Things were fine around here until you brought what's-her-name into the picture. And that's the other thing that we do. We blame. We sin. We shame. We hide. We blame. And and I've got to believe, Eve is looking at me and going, what? What happened to this Bone of my phone, flesh of my flesh thing. What was this big happiness thing you used to have? And then she turns around when she's confronted and she blames the serpent. That's what we do. See, that's our story. How often do we evade and avoid the questions that would set us free? God comes and he says, where are you? Where are you right now? What have you done? Those questions are the questions of grace, of mercy, because God doesn't come to berate and belittle and pound on us. See, here, all the way back in the, the first three chapters, it's a God of mercy and grace. I was naked and I hid. Now, that nakedness is not just our eyes were open and they saw something they hadn't seen before. It's not just referring to a physical nakedness. It's that I have now been laid bare. This is the kind of person that I am. and I'm ashamed of it. And what does God do? Instead of this makeshift little fig leaf thing God becomes a tailor. (laughs) Talk about a designer label. (laughs) And he fashions for them clothing. But he does it with an animal skin. Which means for the very first time in all of creation, blood is shed because of sin. See, I said at the beginning, I don't think we fully comprehend how bad things are. We don't fully comprehend how messed up things really are. We are so accustomed to and living in this broken world and we are so accustomed to our own brokenness and our own sin that we don't realize the damage. But what you find and what we'll find throughout this story as we go through it, when there is sin, there is always, there is always, there is always pain. There is always brokenness. And God fashions clothes for them and an animal loses its life because of them. Because that's what sin does. It destroys. It kills. And then God condemns the serpent to lie on the ground. Now you will crawl on your belly. And then he gives them these words speaking of This relationship now between mankind and the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and him. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that one sentence is prophetic about something that's going to happen thousands of years later. When God sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to this world. And the tempter, the evil one, grasps at his heel and digs in tight. To put him to death. And on the cross, blood is shed once for all. And Satan thinks he has had his way. But in that act, his head is being crushed. Because the grace and the mercy of God has triumphed over power of sin and death and hell. It's right there in the very beginning of the story. And it's something that's available to you and to me today. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.